Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. This morning we get to wrap up uh, our study in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I want to let you know that next week we're kicking off a new series. We're going to step out of Matthew for uh, about two months. And next week we're going to start a series looking at the book of Esther. And I'm really excited for the series because the book of Esther is a really challenging book, a book that a lot of Christians don't know what to do with, but it's a book that speaks, I think, powerfully to our day and age and to to where the American church is. And uh, one of our pastors, Mike Cosper, he's actually written a really great, easy to read, but very um, poignant book on Esther called Faith Among the Faithless. We had ordered some copies, but they're not in yet, so you can buy it on Amazon, uh, which is probably faster than getting it here anyway. But we will have copies available next Sunday. But I'd encourage you this week, if you got some time, sit down and read the story. Pick up a book uh, as we prepare to study Esther. And after that, we're going to look at Daniel, and then we'll be back into the sermon, or sorry, to the, the Gospel of Matthew in August. Um, before we jump in, before we pray, I wanted to share with you, um, Friday morning I got a call that a friend of mine and a fellow pastor in Sojourn Network, a guy named Kevin Galloway, he had died tragically in a car accident. And for those of you that don't know, um, Sojourn, we started a church planting network about 10 years ago. And the goal was to plant churches and to build relationships and uh, to encourage and strengthen existing churches. And Kevin was, I, don't, I think he was one of the founding members of the network. He's been around from the start. And to me and to an, a, a lot of the pastors here, um, he's been a very good friend and a brother. He's challenged us, helped us grow. Um, and so losing him, it really hurts. And I know that over the last 48 hours, he's experienced more joy than you could experience in thousands of lifetimes on this earth. Like I know he's with the Lord and he's rejoicing. I also know that um, he left behind a wife, three grown kids, and a church that are mourning deeply. Um, and so I would love for us as a people to pray for them this morning. They're gathering for the first time without their pastor. I want to pray for his wife, Davina, and his three kids. And so if you will, we you join your heart with mine as we lift Kevin up and his family. Father, in the busyness of life, it's so easy to forget how fleeting life can be. And then a tragedy strikes and we're reminded. I thank you for the gift that Kevin was to me, to a number of the other pastors at Sojourn, Thank you for the gift that he was to your church. 
And while we, we know and we trust and we rejoice in the fact that he is with you, we lift up his wife, Davina, experiencing the shock of losing her husband so unexpectedly. We lift up his kids, Zach and Stephen and Lauren, and all of the emotions that they're feeling right now. And we lift up their church, Christ Church. And Lord, we pray specifically that you, by the power of your spirit, you would overwhelm them with a sense of your presence, your love, and your goodness. That you would grant them a measure of peace and calm in their hearts. And that you would, would stir in them a confidence and a hope in the life that, that Kevin has and that we all have beyond this earth. Lord, I pray as we come to your word this morning, that we wouldn't let the busyness of life crowd out the truths that Jesus has for us here. We ask this in his name. Amen. So I got that call Friday morning, and I'd spent all week, I've actually spent the last few weeks just immersing myself in these few verses at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And they're weighty verses, as Jonathan said last week. Jesus ends his sermon with a bunch of pretty challenging and hard words. He doesn't end with like an inspirational story, you know, to just give you a little boost and push you out. He ends with these warnings about a broad and a narrow way about good trees and bad trees, about people who are going to cry out, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I didn't know you. And here... He wraps it all up with a story about two men building two houses on two different kinds of foundations, and one storm hits. And like any good conclusion, what Jesus is doing with this story is, I think he's summing up some of the main points, the major themes, and then he's calling us to action. He's calling us to respond. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there have been two foundational truths, two like presuppositions, you could say, or, or assumptions Jesus has been making about us and about life that he spells out really clearly here. And so I want to talk about those two truths, and then I want to press into what is he calling us to? What is the application that he's asking us to respond to? The first truth and both of these truths, I would say, they're pretty obvious when you stop and think about it, but in the busyness of life, they're easy to overlook. But the first truth Jesus is holding before us is simply this. Everyone is building their life on something. Everyone has a foundation. And when Jesus, he speaks about two men building homes, in that day, building a home was a metaphor for building a life. It's different than in our day. In that day, homes were, number one, they were usually multi-generational, like you'd live with two, three, maybe even four generations of family. Two, homes, they weren't like they are for us where we buy a home and then we immediately start thinking about buying another home maybe. There was no Zillow in that day. Uh, unless you lived like in, in a very populated area, typically you would live on your family's land, on ancestral land. And oftentimes you would build your house as an addition onto your parent's house. And so there is a sense of place rooted to it. There is family rooted to it. And your work was typically tied to your home. 
that you wouldn't have a shop. Usually what your business was, you would do outside of your home if you're a farmer or a cobbler, cobbler, etc. And so when Jesus talks about two men building a house, he's talking about two men building their lives. And what he's saying is everyone's building a life and everyone's building a life on something. Everyone has a foundation, a philosophy, a set of principles or beliefs about life and meaning and morality and marriage and success and sexuality and family and death and eternity. We all have these beliefs that kind of sit at the bottom of our life that we build our lives upon. We get some of them from our families, our parents, some of it from church, some of it from our friends and community, but everyone's building their life on something. And, and a lot of times these foundational beliefs that we hold, we hold them subconsciously. Like I don't think most people have written them out and said, here are my foundational beliefs, but everyone has them. And these beliefs, they're what give shape to our lives. These beliefs, they, they shape what we value, what we love, what we pursue, what we ignore. And we all believe, even though our foundations might be very different, we all believe, we have this, this unshakable belief that only, if we could only so rightly live according to these foundational beliefs, we would find happiness. If only we could just rightly build on this particular foundation, we would find, a word we've used often here in the sermon, flourishing. And I think that's why Jesus begins his sermon with the Beatitudes. He's saying, I know you're all looking for happiness, for joy. You're looking to find the way of life that leads to flourishing. But then in the sermon, he kind of attacks and he offers these great reversals of the typical foundational truths that we would normally put into place. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But the first truth that Jesus is holding before us is everyone is building their life on something. Everyone has a foundation. And I was talking with my wife about this, and as she so often does, she made a really, really sharp insight. She said, you know, it's funny, we talk about this, and she said, no one would buy a home, although someone after the last service told me they did. So I would say, most people would never buy a home without doing an inspection first, right? You want to know, like, what am I getting myself into? But she said, how easy is it for us to build our lives and never really stop and think about the foundation? And so before we move forward, I just want to ask you, what's your foundation? Not what do you believe or what do you say you believe, but what do you actually believe? And what you actually believe gets revealed by, you know, what you daydream about, how you spend your money and your time, your greatest hopes, your greatest fears. Teenagers, I know... We have a number of students who graduated high school in the last week or two. You're getting ready to set out, and you're entering into this really, really critical point in your life. Your parents have spent years trying to lay a foundation for you, and you're going to start making decisions really soon which parts you're going to keep, which parts you're going to reject. You're going to have to make the decision for yourself. This is what I'm going to build my life upon. And what Jesus says here is that's, that's the most important decision you can make. Everyone's building their life on something. Everyone has a foundation. The second truth, assumption that kind of is woven throughout 
the Sermon on the Mount is that everyone is eventually going to face a storm. Everyone's building their life on something, and eventually everyone's life is going to be put to the test. They're going to be put through a storm. It's really important to notice here that Jesus, he doesn't say contrary to what, you know, I think a lot of us would hope and wish, we, wish was true. He doesn't say the man who built his house on the rock lived a calm and peaceful life of pleasantness. But the man who built on sand, his house was crushed. The storm here, it's indiscriminate and inescapable. It doesn't matter who you worship or how you live. Everyone's going to face a storm sooner or later. Now, there's been debate throughout church history. Is the storm here, what exactly is Jesus referring to? There's a tradition dating back to Augustine that views the storm mentioned here as a metaphor for the trials and tragedies of life. So like the loss of a friend or a spouse or a loved one or a child, the loss of a job, the death of a dream, a dreaded diagnosis. There's another school of thought that says, no, the storm here, Jesus is alluding to the day of reckoning, the day of judgment, when we will all stand before God and give an account. And there's good reason to, to believe that throughout the Old Testament. Storms are often used as a sign of judgment. And so there's a lot of debate, but I don't think that the two are mutually ex exclusive. I think Jesus is probably talking about both. Because in a lot of ways, the storms of life that Jesus guarantees are coming, they're like dress rehearsals for the final storm the day of judgment. Here's what I mean. Every form or every suffering we go through is really a form of loss. Like at the bottom of, of every form of suffering we experience is loss. So it can be loss of a relationship, loss of a dream, loss of your dignity, loss of your health, loss of an ability. But every time we go through these storms, we're reminded of not just how perishable we are, but everything in this world is perishable. And so in this way, the, the storms of life, they, they confront us with the reality that nothing as it is on this earth right now, nothing lasts. Like everything's falling apart. They remind us, as the author of Hebrews says, that we have no abiding city here. But even more than that, the storms of life, they reveal to us what it is we're building our lives upon. When the storms hit, they force us to actually stop and ask, what's really important to me? What do I value? And while Jesus, this is definitely a warning passage, I would say it's not just a warning passage. He, he wants us to see everyone's putting their life on something, a storm's coming, and he wants to warn us. But I think he also, he gives us such a word of hope and promise because he tells us that one of the houses endured through all of the storms. That the rain hit, it was battered, but it remained standing. It says the other one, though, it fell with a great fall. I find a lot of encouragement because Jesus is holding forth hope that we can actually stand in the midst of a storm. We can actually stand in the midst of the day of judgment. You know, no one told us when we moved to Louisville that Louisville's weather was like a temperamental three-year-old. <laughs> it's just violent. And the amount of rain and thunderstorms that 
constantly hit. But I'm guessing that, you know, less than 1% of us here, when these violent storms roll by, which is about once a week, you know, in this season, like how many of you are terrified? There's, there's a few, right? There's a few of you that are like freaked out. You go to the southwest corner of your basement, get into the bathroom, climb into the tub, pull the mattress over you. But the rest of us, we don't really fear the storms. Like sometimes we like admire them from the window. They're so beautiful. I can tell you, I've been backpacking in the midst of a storm like that. It's not beautiful when you're backpacking in it. But we can even sleep through the storms. Why? Because we live in homes that are structurally sound. You see, Jesus, he's giving a warning here, but he's also holding forth a word of hope and promise that there is a foundation you can build your life upon that will enable you to make it through all the storms. He's trying to show us that the most important decision we're going to make in our life is what, what are we going to build our house upon? And he holds before us these two men. One built his house on sand, and one built his house on the rock. And the one who built on the rock endured. But what was the difference? What were those metaphors for? What was the real difference between these two? They both heard Jesus' words. It wasn't like one of them heard and the other didn't. They both heard. And I think that we might be tempted to say, especially if we were brought up in the church, well, the difference between the two, the person whose life fell apart and the person who didn't, the person who made it through judgment and the person who didn't, the big difference between the two is one of them trusted in Jesus as their savior and the other didn't. But that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And I'll tell you, there's a part of me, like God's word is true and I love it as it is, but there's a part of me as a preacher, it'd be easier if he said, the person who believed in me, But he doesn't say that. He says the difference is one person heard and they did, and the other other heard but they didn't do. And the word translated do there, it's the Greek word, and I'll totally botch this, but it's poieo. And uh, it appears 20 times in the Sermon on the Mount, and it shows up in a lot of different forms. It gets translated in different ways in different passages. It shows up an awful lot, eight times kind of in the last... 10 or 12 verses, all of these warning passages. It can mean to do, to make, to give, to bear fruit, to put into practice. But Jesus uses it over and over again. And in verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who, poeo, who does the will of my Father. And so what Jesus, he's driving home at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, and I think if we truly worship him and trust him, we need to take his words for what they say. He says the big difference is some people are informed and transformed by him, while other people just are informed. Some people hear and do, they put into practice. Others hear and they don't do. I love the way Dale Bruner put it. 
He said, the house that crashes is not the house of pagans or of those who did not hear Jesus' words. The house that crashes is the house of Christians who find Jesus' words important enough to hear but not realistic enough to live. For such Christians, the Sermon on the Mount is not practical enough for the demands of modern life. Or it's dispensationally limited. And I know only a few of you know what that means, but be glad uh, if you don't know what that means. Or the Sermon on the Mount, it's too naive for contemporary fast lane life or too spiritual for urgent modern causes. Or perhaps most commonly of all, it is just too hard. For whatever reason, Jesus' words are only heard. They're not done. And what's, what's really interesting to me is Jesus doesn't distinguish between these two as the obedient and the disobedient or as the good and the bad. He doesn't say one's a good man and one's a bad man. He says one man was wise. And that word translated wise means wise, thoughtful, intelligent. And the other man was foolish. In the original language, that word's moros, where we get our word moron, unintelligent, unthinking. Jesus puts this in the category of wisdom and foolishness. Now, of course, there's a morality to our intelligence, but what he's saying, I mean, what is wisdom? Wisdom is living in line with reality. The wise person is the person who recognizes the world for what it is, as it is, and then seeks to live in light of that. The fool is the person who lives perpetually as they wish the world were, even though it's not. And so a foolish person spends their life trying to live against the grain of reality. A wise person recognizes it for what it is and live in light of it. Now, Jesus, he's not just a good teacher. Jesus is the Lord of all. He's the king of all. He's the author of creation. We were told that by him and through him, all things were created. Jesus, more than anyone, knows reality. He knows the way things really are. And so hearing and doing what he is saying, that's living in line with reality. It's living with the grain of the created order. And he's saying, for you, I'm going to tell you how to live. And for you to hear my words, but then flout what I'm saying, it's foolish. He doesn't tell us these words because he wants us to jump through hoops. He tells us these words in the Sermon on the Mount because he wants us to live a wise life and a good life. And that only comes by putting ourselves under his authority. And Matthew tells us that when Jesus finished his sermon, I've always wondered, what would happen if I finished a sermon? And the last line was like, and then there was the fool. And they didn't do what Jesus said, and their house fought, fell, and great was the fall of it. That's the last line of the sermon. Like, I think I would get booed out of here, but I'm not Jesus. Like, I can't preach like he can. But I mean, that's how he ends, this intensity. And Matthew tells us that upon hearing this, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teachings. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. See, the scribes in that day taught kind of like I teach today. They have some original thoughts, but most of them, they're quoting other people, building on other people. Their sermons are footnoted through and through. Jesus gets up and he teaches and he doesn't quote anyone. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> 
like, it's never like, you know, this really great thinker. No, he just speaks with authority. He doesn't footnote. And there was something about him as he delivered these words that people's jaws started to drop and they were overwhelmed with this authority. He had authority in his teaching, but this authority had marked, marked his ministry. He had authority over the weather. Hey, calm down. He had authority over sickness. Get up, you've been healed. He had authority over sin, and this is what really enraged the Pharisees. Is he said, you know, your sins are forgiven, and they're like, who do you think you are to forgive people their sins? He had authority over death. A little girl died, and people are mourning her death, and he says, she's not dead, she's sleeping. And then he goes by her bedside and says, little girl, get up. Jesus, he has authority over everything, every square inch of his creation, every square inch of our lives. And so when he gives us his Sermon on the Mount, it's not just Jesus saying, hey, here's some good ways to live. It's the decree of the king calling us to a life of wisdom. And what he's saying here at the end, for you to hear and not do is utter and absolute foolishness. And it will lead to your ruin. And so the question becomes, well, well, what does it mean to do what Jesus calls us to do here? And I think this is where the Sermon on the Mount challenges us and we get tripped up. I think this is where people do try to explain away, you know, things that Jesus says, like, well, we could never do this. It was more just to make us feel like bad for our sins so we would run to the cross. And while I certainly think that's part of it, Jesus said really explicitly, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Like when Jesus teaches, he teaches in such a way that it seems like he expects us to actually do these things. But I don't think we know how. I mean, most of us were go get them kind of people, get it done kind of people. And so I think the the way we typically try to do this is we would want to codify the Sermon on the Mount. All right, how many commands are there? Let's find some diagnostic questions to ask. And then, like, let's just get to work trying to do it. So he says, don't worry. Have I worried today? He says, don't be greedy. Have I been greedy today? He says, be generous. You know, we go on and on with these lists. And, you know, some people, they'll, they'll do pretty well with the list. <laughs> and if they do... They're going to become self-righteous Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees were. Like, we actually obeyed the laws that we codified. And this actually leads to this works-based righteousness, which runs counter to the whole thread, not just of the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. Or, the more likely response for most of us, is we're going to say, Jesus said, don't worry. Have I worried? I think I might have worried. Now I'm worrying now that I might have worried. I've disobeyed. And we like dig ourselves in a hole. And yet we try again. Well, I just need to try harder. And I think that's where we've really gone wrong in the American church is we don't understand how people change. I heard one pastor describe the American church vision for change is information plus inspiration plus perspiration equals transformation. Like the way we think we change, give me good information find a really dynamic preacher who can inspire us, and then throughout the week, we're going to work it out, and then 
like a week later, we're going to be changed. I mean, I wish that worked. But I can tell you from 20 years of following Jesus and over 10 years of being a pastor, it just doesn't work. I mean, it doesn't work with some of the most basic things of life. like Eating healthy, exercise, flossing. How many of you here know that flossing is good for you? All right, I won't ask you to raise your hand on this next one. How many of you here floss every single day? Yeah, the flossers are so self-righteous. They worry the die too. They're like, no, no, I want you to know. So there's three of you, six total in our church. But we know like if we don't floss, it's going to hurt us long-term. We have that information. Every time we go to the dentist, we get inspired, usually through negative emphasis but it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work for things like eating healthy or exercise or flossing, what makes us think it's going to work with, with the deeper things that Jesus calls us to in the Sermon on the Mount? What makes us think that I got the information, the inspiration, now I'm just going to work hard? That's going to make us people who can really control our anger or who can guard what we say. And I'm not just talking about Good words and bad words. I'm talking about how we talk about people. Critical spirit. What makes us think that through a little more effort and a little more information, all of a sudden we're going to stop worrying? Or we're going to turn the other cheek and be able to, to extend forgiveness to people who really wrong us? What makes us think that a little more information or inspiration or a little more effort is somehow... <laughs> It's going to make us radically generous and set our lives in great distinction from a culture that we live in that's obsessed with accumulation. Like that philosophy, it doesn't work. And I think people try that and then they leave discouraged and they kind of throw their hands in the air. And they're like, well, it must be impossible. But the way Jesus speaks here, it indicates that it must be possible to actually do what he teaches. I want to say that one more time. The way Jesus speaks here indicates that it must be possible to actually do what he teaches. It must be possible to become the kind of people who aren't ruled by anger or lust or pride or worry. It must be possible to become the kinds of people who show forgiveness, who suffer along with people, who love their neighbor, who live with contentment. And you know, if you study history and you hang out in the church, you probably run into these people every once in a while. I can think of people where I've seen this. I see this in their life. It's rare, but it's there. Like, it's real. And so how do we become these kinds of people? Well, one, we've got to see that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't giving us a checklist of moral obligations. One of the things that we've said over and over again in this series is that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is inviting us to a new way of seeing and a new way of being in the world. When Jesus gives the sermon, he doesn't say, try a little harder here. He's saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. He's kind of breaking up old foundations and he's saying, here's a new foundation. I want to give you a new lens through which to see the world 
And then I want your life to be aligned with that new vision. He's not just saying, don't worry. He's saying, your heavenly father, he feeds the birds. He clothes the flowers. Have that vision. See, just look around. You can see God's grace and his provision. Now go live in light of that. This is where it gets to that bigger issue of greater righteousness. I think, gosh, for years I understood greater righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount as like Christ's righteousness. And that's true. Like Christ had greater righteousness, he gives it to us by his grace. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about in that particular context. He's saying our righteousness must exceed that of the the Pharisees and the scribes. Well, their righteousness was external, but it wasn't internal. And that's, again, why throughout this series we've talked about Jesus' great concern here is with our heart. It's heart before behavior, and it's behavior that flows from our hearts. Jesus wants to make us people who are utterly consistent on the inside and the outside. What we believe, what we love, what we say, what we do, they're all in alignment. Put this another way, Jesus, he isn't calling us to spruce up our landscaping. He's calling us to do work on the foundation of our lives. And I know that there are some of you who love to do landscaping work here, and there are a lot of you that don't. But any homeowner here, if I could give you the choice, you're going to go home after church, and you're going to find a problem with your landscaping or your foundation. No one's choosing the foundation. Because a problem with the foundation is a big problem. It's an expensive problem. You can't just go like throw in a few extra nails or slap on, you know, some paint. I think it's okay. There was a crack, but I painted over it. The crack's fixed. To fix a problem with your foundation requires a great deal of attention and care and wisdom and expertise. And so it is with, with the adjusting and fixing the foundation of our lives. It's slow work, soul work, slow work, and it's hard work. But Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying, this is the most important work you can do in life. The most important thing you can do is break up and dig up the old foundation and embrace the foundation I'm laying before you. And one of the many things that I love about Jesus is he puts this call here, but he doesn't leave us to our own devices to do this work. He doesn't say, good luck, and then hand us a shovel. He says, ask, and you'll receive. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. He gives us his spirit who empowers us, who goes before us, who convicts us where we need conviction, who comforts us, who sustains us. And so while I believe we are called to this foundation work and it's hard and it's expensive and it's costly, we're not called to do it alone. But we are called to put forth effort. And I think so many of us in the church, we've, we've tried to change in the past and we didn't feel like we could and we kind of threw up our hands and we stopped growing. 
And I want you to hear this word from Jesus. It's an invitation to grow. There's a reason Jesus called us to be his disciples. A disciple is a student, an apprentice, one who's constantly learning. And that's why I love the way the NIV translates this text, where in the NIV, they, they translate it, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. And practice is such a good word for this. Do kind of sounds like law, like do this or else. Practice, practice, it's process. Like practice is where you can learn and you can make mistakes. You can try things out and maybe it goes great, maybe it doesn't. Inherent in that word is process. And it's going to be a process to to learn to see as Jesus sees and to learn to be in the world as Jesus wants us to be in the world. But the formula, I would replace that other one, the information, inspiration, perspiration, transformation. I would say you've got the Holy Spirit. And then on us, it's about desire and discipline. That's, that's kind of what I've learned. That's my, if I was going to write a book, that would probably be the book. It's 20 years of following Jesus. That's, that's my sum of it. If you actually want to change, it takes under the power of the Spirit, with the guidance of God's Word, it takes desire. You have to actually want to see the world as Jesus sees the world. And then it requires discipline. It requires putting forth effort. Nobody, nobody drifts into the greater righteousness that Jesus calls us to. And we talked... <clears throat> A few weeks ago that disciplines, a spiritual discipline, it's an activity we can do right now which is, enables us to do something we cannot yet do or it enables us to be someone we cannot yet be by sheer willpower alone. And so I use the illustration, I can't run a marathon right now. I think I can run a mile. And if I choose to run a mile every day before long, I'll be able to run a mini marathon, you know, or a 5K. And if I run some 5Ks, probably could run the mini marathon, and then next thing you know, I can get there. Requires discipline. And we know that in every area of life. But so often when it comes to our spiritual lives, we overlook this truth. That nobody drifts into grace. It comes through discipline. And throughout the scriptures and throughout church history, We've seen saints testify, God and his word testify, that these disciplines, they're what changes by the Spirit. And there are a lot of different disciplines. One of the disciplines is showing up today. And some of you, you need to value this discipline more than you do. You show up once a month to check a box, and you kind of neglect how important it is. And for 2,000 years, this is like one of the longest standing institutions in the world. For 2,000 years, Christians have recognized the importance of gathering with the saints. And if you have to miss, like you don't need to feel guilty about it. And I'll be honest, sometimes I feel the pull. I've had a crazy week. If I'm not preaching pajamas and French toast, that kind of sounds good, you know? But every time I come, even if it's like, ah, I would love to not have to shower and get dressed, I never regret it. I never regret it. And so some of you, you probably need to place more value on our Sunday gathering. Others of you probably have too high a value of our Sunday gathering. 
I think there are some people who think, I'm going to grow into this person if I come to church every week. No, you're not. You won't. 80 minutes a week is not enough time to actually be changed. I wish it was. And sometimes I preach, I try to get there, like I'm going to preach the sermon. It's like the microwave of preaching. be so much quicker. It just doesn't work, though. We need other disciplines. We need to be spending time in the Word. Not, and this is where disciplines get tricky for us. A lot of us, we turn them into laws or checklists. It's not that. We get into the Word so that we can say, God, I want to know your ways and your plans for this world so that I can be wise and I can live a life that accords with reality and that honors you. Prayer, the Lord's Prayer. It's where we're saying, God, tune our hearts to your heart and our desires to your desire. It's another form of prayer, prayer of examine, where you pray, you kind of re- reflect and pray at the same time. You ask questions about your day. Like, where did I disobey? Where did I not live up? What went well? And when you do that, what you're saying is, Jesus, I want to trust your vision of flourishing above my own, and I want you to reveal to me where I'm misaligned. You have things like solitude and silence which in our noise and information-cluttered age, just spending 10 minutes in solitude and silence can be terrifying. But it also lets some things come to the surface that maybe you've been pushing down. There's things like fasting. You know, I love to feast, and I think as Christians we have absolutely reasons to feast, but we should also fast at times too. Lord, teach me to hunger after you. For 2,000 years, Christians have found this is how we change. This is how we actually do put into practice what Jesus is saying here. And so I don't know what the Lord might be leading you to, but I know he's leading you to something. And I do want to dispel this notion that, like, (laughs) this belief that, well, if I go to church and I just kind of, you know, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to become this kind of person. You're not. Like, it takes work and it takes discipline. It takes a vision for this kind of life and then rearranging your life to pursue that vision. And so maybe it's a discipline you need to implement. Maybe it's something more basic or foundational than that. Maybe for some of you, it's confessing a sin that really has, like it sucked the life and the energy and momentum out of your spiritual life for months or years. Maybe for some of you it's forgiving someone who hurt you uh, and you've just been harboring bitterness. I don't know. Jesus knows. The Spirit will bring it to bear. I do know we're called to do. And that Jesus ends his most famous teaching, the most famous influential teaching in the history of the world by saying, hey, don't just hear what I'm saying. Go do it. Put it into practice. And if you're here and you're feeling overwhelmed by this, you're feeling convicted, maybe you're mad at me or mad at Jesus because you're like, this is too much. It's like suffocating for me. I've got really good news for you. If you feel your own poverty of spirit, the great thing is Jesus began this whole sermon by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so I think feeling overwhelmed or feeling like, gosh, there's so much and I feel so far away, that puts you in a good spot. Even more, even though Jesus ends the sermon with a strong warning, that's not how he ended his ministry on this earth. 
He preached the sermon and then immediately he went and healed the sick. He forgave the sinful. And eventually he carried our, his cross, which was to be our cross. He died, was buried, and he rose again. So that we might be saved, not on account of our righteousness, but on account of his. I like the way D.A. Carson put it, and I'll end with this. He said, we do well to remember, or we do well to remember that Paul is writing truth when he insists that men are saved only because Christ acted as their substitute and died on their behalf. Christianity is not simply a moralistic religion of high ideals. High ideals, indeed the highest it has. But it also presents a crucified yet risen Savior who forgives those who repent and then gives them life to grow to meet those ideals. I like that quote as we come to the Lord's table. We are reminded of the grace that we've been shown that we are saved because Christ acted as a substitute on our behalf, that his body was broken so ours wouldn't be. But I also, I like when we come to the table as it's a time to rehearse what he's done for us, but it's also a time to be remembered that God provides for us and he provides fuel for the day and the week ahead. And as we come to the table, I think it's a chance for us to confess our sins because we know he's so gracious, but it's also to plead for help. And so I encourage you, if you've trusted in Christ, to come be assured of the grace he's shown to you, but also to examine, to ask, to seek, to knock. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave his life for you. Let me pray.